You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's last lesson of the prayer module, Philip Edwards will make a case for stating our case and how prayer is part of our armoury. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. So from all the team at Arise Ministry, we wish you a Merry Christmas. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to this, uh, our last uh, lesson of the year, uh, 2022, and also the last in this uh, module on prayer. Got two further lessons for you this evening. Uh, the first one is about stating your case when you come before the Lord and the second after the break will be uh, considering how we can use prayer as a weapon and if it is to be used as a weapon. Let's just pray then before we start. Father we've uh, chosen to commit ourselves again to looking at your word and coming together. And we know there's something special when we come together in your name and we open our hearts up to hear from you. Speak to us this evening, we pray. Encourage us and strengthen us, Lord, in this life that we, we've chosen to live, Lord, in following Jesus. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. What does it mean to come before the Lord and to state your case. In prayer, uh, often prayers are petitioning, asking, and we grow up with sometimes just that very narrow perspective that prayer is simply asking God to help us and to be with us. And of course, that is a part of prayer. I'm going to present something to you that we come to him and we state a case before him. We petition him not just simply by asking, but we build a case of why we want him to do something and why perhaps he should do something. In Isaiah 1 and 18, I'll start with this verse. It says, come now, let us reason together. This is God speaking, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And then uh, in Isaiah 43, 25 and 26, he writes this, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. And he puts this, it's for my own sake. The removal of your sin from your life wasn't for your sake primarily, it was for his. It was for his because he wanted a relationship with you, but while your life was full of sin and you were in sin, that was not possible. We know that because in the Garden of Eden, Adam run and hid. He couldn't fellowship with God. So the blotting out of your sins was a great blessing to you, I know, but it was primarily for God himself. He did it for my own sake. And remember your sins no more, he says. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Both these verses, of course, are talking about salvation. Primarily, that's it. But is God saying something a little bit more than this? 
I put the two together, as other teachers have in the past, and they've come up with this. Come, he says, let's reason together. State your case. Let us argue the matter together. I'll just say that again. He says, come, let's reason together. State your case. Let us argue the matter together. Isn't God giving us an open invitation then to come? To come to him, not simply to ask him again for something, ask him again, but to initiate a dialogue. There's something more about stating your case. Coming before him. Let's talk about this matter together. It sounds more exciting, doesn't it, than just a one-way conversation to God where you're continually asking for something. He says, no, no, that's not that what I want. I want a conversation with you. I want to hear from you and I want you to state a case. I want you to come with me and talk with me and let's reason this whole thing out together. God wants to hear what you're thinking about. You're quite at liberty in your times with the Lord, talking to him, just to ramble on about your thoughts. It doesn't have to be constructed or simply to be another petition, but just say, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening or this is happening and can you help me with this? And just, just talk to him, talk to him. He wants to hear our thoughts. He wants us to fully express our feelings about a specific matter that we want to discuss with him. I often sit down and talk about this Bible school. You can imagine that I would do that, wouldn't you? Want to know why this and why that? And is it, is it what you actually want? Could it be better? Could it be different? Our life is served and lived with him. We're in partnership. Ridiculous not to meet with him and talk to him about all these things. You say, Philip, you're going to have to prove this to me from the Bible if I'm going to believe this stuff. Well, it just so happens I've got a couple of examples in front of me, so <laughs> let me just share these with you. I, I talk first about Abraham. Well, of course, we know Abraham was God's friend because he said he was his friend. There's another person who was his friend, and that was Moses. And so we're going to look at him as our second example. You've imagined that as well. But let's go to this first one. It's in Genesis 18 and 17. This is what God says in relationship to Abraham. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That's a lovely way to think of God, isn't it? That he wants to actually have a chat with us about it. You say, oh, I'm no Abraham. Well, it says Abraham was a friend of God. And Jesus said that we are his friends. If he says, if you obey me and follow me, I now call you friends, not simply servants, but we're friends. So we too can consider ourselves a friend of God. Of course, Abraham has a reasoned response to this. In Genesis 18, 23 and 25, it says, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Well, of course, he knew the answer to that. He was posing a question of which he already knew the answer. And he says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Well, he knew the answer to that one as well. He was building a case, you see. What he was looking to do was to protect or save his nephew Lot. 
God was going to come down and hail brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and his nephew lived there. And he petitions him. You perhaps remember the story where they sort of have this long dialogue together. It appears that Abraham is concerned for two things. He is concerned for God's reputation. He's not being completely cynical when he says these things. Will not the God of all the world do what's right? Will, will you wipe away the righteous with the wicked God? You can't do that because that's not who you are. So he is, he is protecting his reputation in the conversation, but also he's looking to save his nephew Lot in it. Abraham is stating his case, not to save himself, but to save his nephew. He's petitioning God. He's bringing a case before the Lord. I said Moses would be my second one, as he too is called a friend of God. In Genesis 32 and 10, it says this, Now leave me alone, God speaking, so my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. It's even interesting to think there's God having a chat with Moses, as it were, just, just saying, oh, by the way, this is what I'm planning to do, Moses, just blast these Israelites because they're just driving me mad with their complaining and their groaning. That's what it was mostly about. It was about complaining and, and moaning. God doesn't like that stuff. He really likes us to be appreciative and thankful. So what was Moses' reasoning response? Genesis 32:11 says, But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Again, he is interested in the reputation of God. We've got to learn this, that our prayers should be more about God's reputation than about our own deliverance. It's a hard lesson to learn because we're so focused on our deliverance, we think it's all about us. It's not about us, it's about him. He saved you, not for your sake, but for his sake. That's what we looked at at the beginning. So Moses is stating his case on behalf of the people. But remember, in, as you read through that, if you want to read around that, he says basically to God, but what will the nations of the world think of you destroying the very people that you delivered from Egypt and now you've destroyed them? See, he's for his reputation. We have to think about how we pray a little more carefully and make sure we focus God in the middle, not as our provider and our deliverer and our saviour, but one who is the Lord Most High, who should be exalted and whose reputation is at what is at, what is at stake here. The third example I've got is speaking to his highly esteemed servant, Daniel. We've had a study of Daniel, haven't we, recently? So much has come out of Daniel, it's, and it sort of goes on into other teachings as well. He calls him his highly esteemed servant. Daniel pleads his case before the Lord. We studied it one evening with the, when we looked at uh, uh, the whole thing of repentance in prayer. But in this, in this prayer that he prays in Daniel 9, listen how he focuses on God as being central to the whole thing. 
He says, now, our God, hear the prayer and the petition of your servant. Then he starts, for your sake, for your sake, O Lord, not for ours, we're in a mess, but for your sake, O Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. He said, it's not about us, it's about the temple in Jerusalem. Look at it, Lord, it's your temple. Look what people are saying about the temple of the living God. It's, it's for your sanctuary, he says. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. Not only the temple, but the whole city of Jerusalem is in a, is in a, a state of ruin, Lord, and it bears your name. It's your city. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. God doesn't owe you any favours at all. I don't care what you've done or you're doing. He doesn't owe you any favours. It's because of his mercy. We plead on behalf of his mercy. O oh Lord, listen. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, hear and act for your sake, he says. O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Oh, we get it. Okay, we get it, Daniel. You don't have to press the point anymore. It's about him. It is only about the concern for God's reputation. We've got to bring that into our prayers. Somehow we've got to centralise on that. A couple of points here regarding uh, this, this way of praying to God. God is unchanging. He cannot change. What we are considering here is not changing the mind of God. So God says, I'm going to pour uh, fire and hailstones down on Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just, and we're not trying to change his mind. God knows exactly what he's going to do before he ever speaks to him. But what he does, he creates a space between what he says he's going to do and what he does. And it's up to us to jump in that space and to speak. Okay, it's important we do that. We know something is happening or not happening that God might have even said he was going to do or not do. We need to jump in there and speak. It, from our perspective, it looks like God said he was going to do this. We prayed and now he's, he's, I've changed his mind. That's what it looked like to Moses and it looked like to Abraham. But God knew, didn't he? He knew when he created the space, someone would jump in there and petition him. And in that petition of prayer, stating his case before the Lord, the Lord would then do what he had always planned to do. He's not making a fool of us. He's creating the opportunity. He knew that Abraham would jump in on behalf of Lot. And he knew Moses would perhaps jump in on behalf of the nation of Israel because he can see the end from the beginning. But you see, it's important you recognise the space that God has created for us to pray. And if we don't pray or no one prays, he will do what he has said. Or sometimes God has said something and if we don't pray, what he has said will not come to pass. I'll explain this a little bit clearer as I go on. So the out, actual outcome of everything is fixed in the mind of God already. 
God sometimes says, I'm going to do something, but unless we pray about what he said he's going to do, it doesn't happen. Even though he said he was going to do something. We'll look at this a little bit later. The second point that I want to make about this, uh, stating the case, is God is all-knowing. God knows what we're going to think before we think it. We've looked at that passage prior. He knows it. Before a word is on our tongue, he says, before a thought is in our mind, God knows exactly. Why would he want us to go through a process of talking to him and voicing our opinion about certain matters if he already knows what we have need of? Have you argued that case yourself? You say, Lord, if you know I need this, what on earth do I have to come to you for and ask you for this? Because it's for your purpose that I'm doing this, so why have I got to go through this rigmarole of talking to you? Why would God even want us to pray in the first place? So you have to struggle with this all-knowing God. And he does know all things, but even in knowing he has called us into partnership with us, and we have a part to play in it all. Why doesn't God then, in these situations, just rely on his perfect knowledge in all things and just give us what we'll need to do the job? He says, Jesus says, pray for labourers. Well, of course we need labourers. Why? Lord, why do we have to pray for labourers? Just send labourers and we'll build the church. It's, it's obvious. No, he says, no, you must pray for labourers. If you don't pray for labourers, you don't get any labourers. Oh, I believe there's only one possible reason why he wants us to pray in this way. He wants more than anything else in this world that we enter into a one-on-one -on -one dialogue, conversation, personal relationship with God. That's it. Of course, in reality, he doesn't need us at all. He could do what he likes. But he hasn't created us to be puppets that he just does what he likes. He's created us to be in relationship with him, made after his own image. Objects of love and ones that can love and walk with him and relate to him. If we never had to approach God in prayer to voice and express any of our thoughts, feelings and opinions on anything, then he would never enter into any type of dialogue or personal conversation with him. We wouldn't, would we? That's, the, uh, that's when we enter into it. We recognise our need and the one who can supply our need and so we're, we're, we're driven to him. See, it's need, it's need that pushes us forward. If, if we didn't need to, to eat or live in warm accommodation or wear clothes, none of us would go to work, would we? Wouldn't bother. I mean, <laughs> That's what we come to work for, isn't it? And if, if we didn't have a need to love and be loved, we wouldn't chase after anyone, would we? We'd just think, oh, I'm all right, I'm on my own, I don't care, I don't need anything. You see, need, need drives us forward. And God knows that. And so he wants us to come to him in this place of need. It drives us to God constantly. And if we cannot establish any kind of good two-way 
communication and dialogue with the Lord, then no real close personal relationship is ever going to develop between him and us. Prayer should have been presented to us as something different, shouldn't it? Then we wouldn't have been put off, maybe at a very early age. Somehow it was to do with ritual and, you know, just saying the right things or we didn't realise there was this loving, loving God who simply just wanted to have a relationship with us. And all relationship is rooted in conversation, dialogue, together one with another. Don't tell me you've got a friend who you never talk to. Well, you've got an acquaintance. It's not a friend, is it? You've got to talk to friends. You've got to talk to your family. You've got to talk to people to build relationships. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Isn't it funny when the Holy Spirit comes into us, what he does, the first thing he does, he gives us a language that we can talk to him in. Isn't that wonderful? It's called the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in other tongues. He knows exactly what he's doing. We talk to God through this wonderful, wonderful language and we talk to the Holy Spirit through this heavenly language that he's given us. The first thing that he does is fill us with this and we can start building this relationship, this conversation. The only way that any good personal relationship can be developed between two people is through good personal, free-flowing conversation and dialogue where both parties are totally free to express all of their thoughts, opinions and feelings about anything they want to talk about. We don't always say everything, do we, to our friends, to our closest ones. There's things we hold back that you can't hold anything back from God because he knows it already. See, you might as well just come out with it. Oh, God, I'm really angry today. Oh, God, I'm even angry with you today. I know this is ridiculous and nonsense, but we're at liberty to say we couldn't speak to, to people like that. Not everyone. You can't do it. It doesn't, because people are sensitive and they have feelings and you have to hold things back. This is, though, that what makes a best friend relationship so unique and so wonderful because you are so in tune with your best friend and so comfortable with them that you are totally free and comfortable in being yourself. Well, I don't think we have friends quite like that, that we can be totally ourselves. I might be wrong, but that's not been my experience of life. You always have to hold some things back because you're not certain. And you don't know, and you don't want to hurt people. And uh, normally, though, with our friends, we can express the way we feel uh, more so than with anyone else. God then desires relationship with us, but His relationship with us is far different from our relationship with a normal other normal human being. God wants us available to Him. 24-7. That's a bit strong, I can't do that. For dialogue with him. That doesn't mean you have to be talking to him all day. No, I said you have to be available to him. Because you never know when he wants to talk to you. Sometimes he wakes you up in the middle of the night, early in the morning. Uh, maybe you're doing something else and all of a sudden he speaks and you go, whoa, I didn't expect that. I was busy doing this. God then, he, he wants your availability. This is only possible with God. Somehow you can get on with life 
and have this availability. When we study the thing of listening and not hearing, what I said was it's making yourself available. It's an attitude of God speak anytime and I'm here. I will listen to you. So we've got half an ear always open to what God might say when he wants to say it. God wants to become our best friend at the same time as being the God of the universe. I don't like getting too matey with God, but he does want to be our friend. <laughs> how you are, how, how God is my friend and the creator and the sustainer of the universe, I don't know. But God can do that. He can do that and he wants to do that and only God can do that. God has to be number one in our life. He'll not settle to be two at all, ever. Next to your family or friends, he won't be that. He can only be number one. And somehow within all of our intense human relationships and friendships, he can still be number one. Only God can do that. It doesn't affect the other relationships we have on earth. God has a consuming fire type of love, that's what scripture says, for every one of us. That's amazing, but only God can do that. And God is possessive and jealous over every single one of us with an intense and passionate love. Only God can do that. We are then to approach his throne of grace, it says, boldly. Because we approach it being washed in the blood of Jesus. We come with confidence in who we are based on who Christ is and what he's done for us. We come boldly and not afraid. We come to state our case, to reason with him, to contend with him. I called this evening studies, come out fighting. Okay, you see, there's something strong and bold about prayer. Not simply falling on our knees crying and making petitions, but something about boldness in his presence. Not an arrogance in ourselves, but, but coming as he has called us to come to him with a real boldness. We should be Christians who pray for our church. I mean, not only our local church, but the church in this nation. We must pray for it. God expects us to. He expects us to come and petition him on behalf of our church, to come boldly into his presence. If we're going to come, we must stop first and construct our case as to why God should save the church in the UK. Construct a case. Why should he? Well, it's got to be something about the glory of his name, hasn't it? It's, about, it's not about us, or it's not about you, or the people of Britain. It's not even about your church. That's no reason for God to come. We petition him on the basis, God this is your nation. Christ died for your nation. It is for your glory. We call ourselves Christian. Lord, 
it is for your glory we want you to move in power in our land. State our case then with a reasoned argument. Maybe before we even pray, we get before God and we speak to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, help me build a case. He's called the comforter, the advocate. You see, that's the job of the Holy Spirit, to come as an advocate and help you build your case before you go into the courtroom of the Almighty. And you might have to speak for yourself, but let him be your advisor. Let him tell you the best way to petition God to respond. We must create a desire in God to want answers to our prayer in the first place. The, the defendant has to build a case in defence of his client to convince the jury and the judge and everybody else that you've got to find my client innocent. You see, you have to build a case. We must create a desire then in God to want to answer our prayers in the first place. I'm not used to thinking like this, Phil. No, that's why you've come to a Bible school, so I changed the way you're thinking a little bit. Build a case. Convince God that he should save our nation to turn things around, convince him, come and reason with him, argue the case with him, make a case for him. Abraham, Moses, Daniel, Jeremiah, and all the others, they stepped in the gap, didn't they? And I gave you the examples. They argued the case. God, you can't do this because of this. You can't do this because of your reputation. God, you must do this. But in the back of their minds, they were saving someone. We're saving someone but we build a case. There are several examples in the New Testament. I'm going to take you to one first in Acts chapter 4. And from verse 23. Let's see if it sounds to you like building a case. Acts 4 and 23, says the believers pray. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They heard that the opposition were going to smash them, completely crush them and remove them from the scene. So they've come to God now and they're petitioning God. They're going to bring a case before their God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven, a bit of flattery here, nothing wrong in this, okay. You made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Nothing wrong with bringing the word of God back to God. Cheeky, yes? Okay. No, it's bold. It's bold. It's what we should do. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, he said, even Herod and Pontius the Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
They did what your power and will had decided before should happen. Now they go. Now, they said, we've built the case, we've established it. It's about Old Testament, it's about New Testament. Jesus come and he died for the sake of this, what we're going to bring to you now. Now, Lord, he said, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See the petition. Move upon us with power, they said, for your sake, for the name of your son Jesus, and send us forth that we would heal and deliver and raise the dead. God was so excited, was he? He started jumping up and down. Do you remember? It says then, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. God was so excited about their prayer, their petition. He says, you won the case. You've won the case. Of course you can have this. The judges said you're free. Go for it. Okay, I'm getting too excited about this now. Now turn with me to James, James chapter 4. I want to convince you of the truth of this teaching. Okay. James chapter 4, come with me. This isn't so exciting as that one, so I can't preach it in the same vein. Um, but I'm going to read to you from verses 4 to 10. 4 to 10. James 4, 4 to 10. He, said, he says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? He's building a case now and he's, he's, he's admitting his faults, but he wants God to still move. You're adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit is caused to live in us uh, envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, we have been awful towards you, he's saying, we don't deserve anything from you. But you are so gracious, God. See, he's coming with his petition. God, he says, he goes on. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve, mourn and wail, change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Lord, if we come in humility, we are awful people. But if we come with this humility, in your grace and mercy, will you, will you turn towards us again? Petitioning, you see. Isn't that what Daniel did? in his great prayer of repentance, which we read that bit about, he just came and, and built this wonderful case before God. And it's as though God says, I can't say no to you. I can't, I have to move. And there's something that we need when we pray for the church, when we pray for our nation, that we have in our heart this sense of, it's about you, God. You move on behalf of our nation. You turn things around. I shared a little testimony with you what's happening at this church. I'm helping uh, in, in the east end of London there. 
we, we, I just drill this into them. We're not worthy of this, but God, we build a case before you that you would move with power. Amen. God bless you. I want to talk to you in this session uh, about prayer being a weapon. It, it sounds a, a strange thing to say because we think God is a God of peace and a God of love. Uh, why would prayer ever be a weapon? How could it ever be considered that? I'll have to turn you, of course, to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read uh, from verse 10 uh, through to 20. Ephesians 6, 10 through to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fiercely, fearlessly as I should. A couple of things he instructs us to do there regarding prayer. He says we're to pray on all occasions. That could be positive and negative times when there's plenty and when there's little. He also tells us that there's all kinds of prayer. In the context of this passage in Scripture, there are prayers to pray then to win battles. This is the whole thrust of what he's saying. He says we're in a battle. He's telling us to put on protective armour, but in the same breath he's saying, and we must now go on the offensive. And to go on the offensive is that we use prayer. We're given a list of half a dozen things that we are to defend ourselves with. With the exception of the sword, all of them are for our protection. Walk in righteousness. Always speak the truth. Uh, be ready on all occasions. Guard your mind with the helmet of salvation. With the exception of the sword, which is an offensive weapon, not so much a defensive weapon, but the sword here is not the sort of sword that we read about the other week that Goliath had, an enormous long sword to take into battle. It was just a short sword. In fact, 
if your arm was short, the, sh the sword was short. It was just something that you could, in close combat, use. So it was an offensive weapon, but really it was more a defensive than an offensive weapon, if you understand what I'm saying. Paul, though, he calls us to go on the attack. We read this in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. Paul speaks about our obligation to demolish Satan's strongholds. It says this in 2 Corinthians 10, uh, 3 and 4. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds. I think for most Christians, initially, when we discover there is a devil, we go very much on the defensive. We think of standing, you know, standing to resist. Be careful, he says, there is one like a roaring lion who keeps, uh, wants to devour you. And so it's this, it's this defensive mode we take against the enemy, standing firm. But eventually, we must go on the offensive. I stop there because not all Christians realise this. You don't win a war by defending and standing. You don't. It's impossible. You can't do it. In the current situation where we see Ukraine and Russia, it's only because Ukraine are fed with so much weaponry that they're not standing and defending. They are pushing back the enemy. I'm presuming they're not wanting to go beyond their own borders. They have no reason to do that. They're not an attacking people. But they, have, they can't just stand. They have to advance and push against the enemy. We must discover then what our weapons of attack are. If we're to demolish Satan's strongholds, which he tells us to do, we have to discover what they are. We'll never win the war by retreating or even merely hold our ground by making certain confessions. We have to go on the attack. We have to go forward and strike against the enemy. As long as Satan keeps the church on the defensive, no, even better, he convinces the church he doesn't even exist. He's not even there. There's nothing to fight or defend. He's just, he's non-existent. That's a lie. And not even knowing that you've even got an enemy just gives him the field to do exactly what he wants to do. We must overthrow the enemy. We have to do that. Of course, it's the power of God working in and through us. God could do it in a moment. Just, just do that and it would be all over. But like everything else, he wants to do it with us. He wants to work with us and through us. So I'm going to suggest to you, you have an obligation to move out of the defence into the attack in your own personal life, in your community, in the life of your church, the life of the nation and of the world, really. We have an offensive, def uh, attacking offensive part to play. The scripture uh, the scriptural basis, I suppose, for uh, the church taking the offences is a verse in Colossians 2 and 15. It starts with this. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities. We just say, that's a good place to start. 
because the weapons of the enemy have been taken from him. He's disarmed him. The powers and the authorities that he's talking about there in Colossians is the same as the rulers and authorities we read about in Ephesians 12. It's, it's the same word. So when, when Christ with his father established the kingdom of heaven, as it were, there were these authorities and rulers. When Satan fell, he established these same rulers and authorities. So that's the sort of contest that we see between the two. It says that through the cross, God disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Satan then has been left without armour. Satan has been stripped of his weapons. Paul then goes on to say in Colossians 2 and 15, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So through the cross, he triumphed over Satan, took away his weapons, took away his armour. Something was established at the cross that would guarantee our victory. If you're fighting someone who has no defensive armour and no weapons, you should win. See, we have to see this. First we have to see there's a battle, then we have to see that the enemy, although he might shout at us very loudly, a bit like Goliath did at David, he has no weapons. Goliath had a few weapons, but our enemy has no weapons. He's disarmed him. We must see this. Or we just cower away because he threatens us or he challenges us. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Who are the thems that he triumphed over? I would suggest it was evil spirits, number one. Fallen angels, I see them as different entities. And men and women who do his bidding. Those are the three sorts of forces that Satan has operating in the world. What does it mean then for us now here? When Jesus went to the cross and accomplished this victory through his death and resurrection, his victory wasn't for himself. He didn't accomplish anything for himself. He was always victorious. We know that when he walked around on the earth, the enemy couldn't touch him. He said, he hasn't touched me. He's got nothing on me at all. And he overcame sickness and disease and death and poverty. He was a greater match. Satan was no match for Christ. So by going to the cross, he won a victory, not for himself, for you and me. He won the victory for us. As our representative, he won a victory for us. Now you have to take this in. You think, hang on here, I'm a victor now. I've been a victor for 2,000 years. Satan can't just do what he thinks he wants to do with me. He can't. He can't deceive me and trick me. He can't defeat me. He can't pull me down. He can't because Christ won a victory for me 
on the cross. Now we always and in every place are to represent Christ's victory. We represent his victory in the world. That which he did on the cross, disarming and destroying the enemy's power, we now can demonstrate that. God is going to demonstrate publicly the victory that Christ has won for us in this town, wherever you are, wherever you live listening to this. We live in Hastings. Christ has won the victory for us in Hastings. Although Satan walks around in the streets and we see him in the faces of the people and, and all the stuff that's going on as though he can arrogantly strut around, we need not be intimidated by him because Christ has won a victory for us. The victory that we have is over his authorities and his powers all the ruling princes in the heavens. And with our spiritual weapons, we demolish his strongholds. Does he have strongholds in your hometown? Maybe you could walk around the town and say, that's a stronghold, and that's a stronghold, and I know what goes on there, that's a stronghold. And we can demolish them. In fact, for this town, your town, to come to Christ, we have to demolish the strongholds. It's part of the spiritual conflict and battle that we've been called to. It's part of the prayer ministry that we have chosen to enter into. We could destroy strongholds simply from our own front room if we recognize the enemy, if we recognize who we are in Christ and what we have. We can demolish strongholds without even coming out of our homes or even leaving our churches. Simply smash it and then gather in those that are ready to be born again and saved. The church must recognize this. It must teach it. It must understand it. Otherwise, we're always just just losing, losing the battle. We, we hope that one day Christ will come again and do something with all of this so we can then gather people in when all the time he's done what he's done. And it's for us to step forward to demolish the strongholds. He hasn't given us one weapon, but several weapons. Let me just remind you of what they are. I'm just going to deal with the four main weapons that he's given us. Of course, the first is prayer. Listen to what Isaiah said in chapter 37. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. We noticed a couple of things there. He saves the city for his sake. It's his city. But he also says within that, he has heard your prayer, Hezekiah. And because you prayed, then God will do this thing. What a weapon. He didn't have to even garrison his troops or anything. He simply prayed and the prayer was enough for God to move 
and to deal with the Assyrian king. The second weapon I want to draw to your attention is praise. In Psalm 8 and 2 it says this, From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and his anger. An almighty God needs no great power to back him to defeat the enemy. He shuts up the enemies through little children and their spontaneous praise. That's exciting, isn't it? Just the singing of children to God, it caused him to move in extreme power. Let me read that passage for you. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, and uh, it's well worth reading. Uh, Matthew 21. From verse, uh, from verse 12 to 17. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling dove. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame, they came to him at the temple. There was room now, you see, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wondrous things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he slept that night. The enemy thought, you see, he had the whole of the temple area sewn up. Even at the time of feasts, he was ruling over it. He had this strategy of doing it. Because Jesus come and upset things. And then the children came in singing, praising, praising God. And it was a weapon against the enemies of God. The third thing that uh, he will use uh, to destroy the enemy is preaching. In Jeremiah 23, 29, we read this. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces? When the word of God is proclaimed and preached powerfully, it just breaks the enemy apart. It smashes it. It smashes into his kingdom. It destroys and it inspires people to move out onto the attack. And the fourth thing is, of course, testimony. It says in Revelations 12, 11, you probably all know this one, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They testified to what the blood of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus, had accomplished for them. There's a whole list of things we could say, through the blood we have this, through the blood we have redemption, through the blood we have something. So when we testify about the power of the death of Jesus Christ publicly and preach about it, then we know the enemy runs. There's something about testifying to what the death of Jesus and the blood of Jesus performed will frighten the enemy 
and send him running. I want to give you now, uh, for the remainder of this, a, a New Testament example of the power of prayer as a weapon. The church, we know, uh, at the start got off to a really explosive start. Well, it didn't take the, the enemy long to realise I've got to close this thing down, shut it down. We read story after story in the book of Acts where the enemy closed down the church, uh, scattered the church, anything he could possibly do to break up the effect of the church's development and growth. He came against the church through King Herod. He should never have been king. He was put there by the Romans. He persecuted the Christian church. He was working with the Romans. He was working with the devil, basically, and the devil was moving in and through him. James, the brother of John, remember, was one of the leaders in the church, and Herod had him executed. Of course, the Jewish authorities thought this was wonderful. And so Herod, to curry favour with them again, he thought, well, I'll get Peter next. I'll put Peter in prison and I'll execute him. So Peter was arrested and put in prison. His death was a definite. He was not going to escape. They would not break him out. No one would bribe the guards to let him free. He just garrisoned many soldiers around him to keep him. He couldn't destroy him there and then. He had to wait till this religious festival was over because the people would have been upset with him. So he's going to wait till this uh, festive season is over and then he's going to go for it. Let me read to you Acts 12, 1 to 6. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Sixteen of them just to guard this one man. He must not escape. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. He would not do it during the Passover because that would have been considered desecrating a holy period in the Jewish calendar. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. What was the church doing? Earnestly praying. What if they had not prayed? See, God had, God had said to Peter, Peter, you will grow old. Remember the promise he gave to him? And men will take you and they'll dress you, an indication of you won't even be able to dress yourself. You'll be that old when you die. And then eventually you will die for me, as it were. So God had declared that he would not die through Herod and his bitterness against him. But if the church hadn't prayed, would God's word have come true? You see, it's that space again where we're left to pray. He's going to be destroyed without a question of a doubt. There are four squadrons of four soldiers guarding this man. This man's going to die. So God says, this is the space now. Pray. Pray. 
pray in this space. And as they pray in this space, it causes the will of God to be performed in Peter's life. Peter will be saved. Not because God said he would, a combination of God saying it, knowing the end from the beginning, and the participation of the church praying. Otherwise, he's making a fool of us all the time. If he's just going to do what he's going to do, what are we doing? It's important, you see, that we pray. Peter was in the maximum security prison without a shadow of a doubt. Herod was determined that no one would rescue him. He carried favour before he would do it again. It says the church was earnestly praying. I looked up the authorised. I like the authorised sometimes. It says, without ceasing. Another version says, they were praying day and night. Well, I suppose without ceasing is day and night, isn't it? You just go on and on and on. You see, the crisis that had, had risen up, it caused them to do it. He said, listen, unless we do this prayer thing, he will die, so we stay here. They might have done it in relays, I don't know, and I don't know how long it was, but as soon as he was imprisoned, and of course there was a time for the Passover to move on, and that would have been a week or more, they prayed, they prayed earnestly for Peter to be released. If only we see the, the present crisis we will pray. You see, what the devil does, he deceives us from believing there's a crisis at all. It's fine. The church is fine. You're getting on all right. You're, you're doing fine. But we've got to see the condition of the situation, the crisis that we're in, before we'll ever pray. He saw the crisis. They saw the crisis. Now they saw the danger that Peter was in. The record indicated that they were praying, as I said, day and night. God answered the prayer of the church by sending an angel to deliver him. Why did he send an angel? He didn't always send angels, did he? Remember when Paul and Silas were in prison and they were, they were in a bit of a tight squeeze there. He never sent an angel there. He just shook the building in that particular... He's into shaking buildings, apparently, isn't he, tonight? He shook the building there, and then, you know, the jailer, and you know all the story, how Paul was released and so forth. There was a serious situation going on here. God sent an angel. I wonder who he sent. I don't name the angels. I don't think it was Gabriel, because Gabriel is the angel that brings messages from God. I wonder if it was Michael, the defender of Israel, the one who protects them. I wonder if it was him or just some other angel. Verses from 8 to 11. <coughs> Sorry, then the angel said, uh, as he arrives at the prison now, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. He said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me, because we're going outside. No, he didn't say that, but that's where he <laughs> definitely got the message. You're going to put your coat on because it's chilly out there tonight. Okay. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision, having a dream about the whole business. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. 
They passed the first and the second guards, and they came to the iron gates leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked through the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angels and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. What caused that? Prayer. If it wasn't prayer that caused it, what's the story all about? It's about the prayer. It's not about the release. That's fantastic. That was the result of the main thing, which was the prayer of the people. Although God had said, Peter, you will grow to be an old man, he left a space for them to jump in and to pray. That's what God does with us. We know something is going to happen or not happen. That's the time to get in there and start to pray because it will appear that you've changed the mind of God. You've changed the outcome of what's coming. God always knows what the outcome is, but he wants us to get together with him and be part of the process of either victory or deliverance or whatever it is, changing the course of history. That's what we do when we pray. We change the course of history. Really? You're a bit over the top again, Phil. Well, just, just talk simply to us. We change the course of history through our prayer. God answered the prayer of the church by supernatural intervention. However, the deliverance was only the first part of the result of this prayer. Don't stop there with this story. You must read on. The second part is in Acts 12, this time 19 to 23. We read a little bit more about this man, Herod. Herod's the problem. They, they pray and Peter's delivered, but they haven't got rid of the problem, have they? At war, you've got to get rid of the main problem. We know in Ukraine and the Russian war, there's one main problem, yes? If this main problem is removed, we believe the war will end, yes? So, so whatever we do, without doing this, we haven't won. It just carries on and carries on. Someone has to be removed. The main instigator that Satan is working through to cause this war to keep going, keep going, and it could go on for years unless something happens to this. You feel that we should be in the gap praying? The church should be in the gap. You go, well, is it a crisis? If you're a Ukrainian, it's a crisis. And we should be moved by the Spirit of God, when we think and we see these things and we, we can engage ourselves in it. So, verse 19 then of Acts 12. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judah to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had, he had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace 
because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. He was quarrelling with this Gentile group of kings. They wanted to make peace with him because they needed the grain from Israel. And so they had an envoy come and he worked and he brought about peace. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. In other words, they flattered Herod by calling him a God. But notice the result. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. Oh, we like that bit, don't we? <laughs> we really do. No, we do. Be honest now. We want to see the end of the enemy. He was a type, you see, of Satan. And that's what we want to see. We want to see the downfall of Satan, the one who is causing all this mess. And we fight through our praise, through our preaching, uh, through our prayer, through our testimony, we have to engage ourselves in the battle to see the enemy brought low. The church prayed and brought the enemy of God down with a crash. Their prayer didn't stop, you see, at simply releasing Peter. It was move the enemy out the way. When we pray for God to move in this nation, what we're really praying, and perhaps we should really pray, pray the enemy out of the way. When the enemy is removed, he comes in like a flood to the people. See, he is like a hindrance in the heavens. He is the prince of the power of the air. He operates control over the earth, and the saints of God must pray. We learned this in Daniel, didn't we? As Daniel prayed, the heavens were broken open, and we see the answer. Prayer broke through the heavenlies and released the intervention of angels. Maybe, you see, God, as in the case of Daniel, maybe God had sent that angel. Okay, just like he did in Daniel's, Daniel's case, remember? But it took three weeks for him to come through. But he couldn't break through the demonic, could he? Until Michael came and assisted Gabriel to open the way and then the angel could come through. You see, as the church prayed for Daniel's release, maybe that angel was sent at the very beginning when he first heard their prayers. He said, I'm going to respond to this. He said, but there was opposition as well. And as they continued in their prayer, the angel was able to break through, as it were. We get the same picture there, breaking through and doing the will of God. Peter had been promised by Jesus as I said, he would live into his old age. But it took prayer to enforce the promise of God's word. <laughs> this is important that you understand this. The promises of God's word are not a substitute for our prayers. It was three years ago that God spoke clearly to me to start a Bible school. And this is what I did. I think there's been tremendous opposition to the school. If I'd been slack in prayer, it's my own fault. It's my own fault. 
Now, we could always say, oh, we could always pray more, Philip. We could always pray more. But if we don't pray, you see, the enemy binds things up. He stops. He can stop the blessing. And to an extent, God permits that to happen because he's called us into partnership to cause things to be broken in the heavenlies as he did with Daniel, as he does with the saints who are praying for Peter's release. He engages us in the conflict. The church here, they pray. It takes our prayers, you see, to make the promise of God's word effective in our spirit. It also takes our prayers to release the intervention of angels on our behalf. It says angels are ministering spirits sent to assist those who are being saved. As you pray in situations, God sends angels. As we maintain prayer in whatever battle we're engaged in, angels come with the answers from God and they bring the answer. They bring relief to the whole situation. But generally they don't come or they can't get through unless we pray. That's the part that we play. We pray, we testify, we praise, and we preach the word of God. By our prayers, we release the intervention of God's holy angels, which bring God's answers. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.